Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons, American History and Civics Podcast, where we renew the spirit of America by learning about what makes America the greatest nation in world history, including our founding first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, as well as flags and other key symbols of America. Don't forget to check out Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren. I am joined by the dynamic duo of special Patriot narrators, Mike Gerard Skanechny, who happens to be the host of his own podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard, and bombastic Brent Bassett, attorney and IT sales guru turned podcast narrator. This episode, we are taking a short detour of reviewing the Declaration of Independence and focusing on the American holiday of Labor Day. According to the United States Department of Labor, quote, Labor Day, the first Monday in September, is a creation of the labor movement and is dedicated to the social and economic achievements of American workers. It constitutes a yearly national tribute to the contributions workers have made to the strength, prosperity, and well-being of our country, unquote. Right. Let's face it. Most of us use the day as an empty excuse to take a three-day weekend and say goodbye to summer. Still, it's a national holiday. Let's find out where it came from and why the nation established it. If you missed prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up to where we are now. But if not, please join us right here and now. When we return, we examine the origins and purpose of Labor Day. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back, my fellow patriots. Close your eyes, unless you're driving, or biking, or running, or barbecuing. Well, never mind. Just consider, what is the first thing that jumps to your mind when you think of Labor Day? Let's see how we did, Patriot contestants. Did you think of a three-day weekend? First Monday of September? Last day of summer? Beginning of fall? Schools opening up, barbecues, really fabulistic sales. That's what I thought you thought. But you also think of Matthew McGuire, Peter McGuire, the Central Labor Union, Oregon, or 1887, or 1894, or maybe even May Day? No, I didn't think so. Well, my fellow patriots, We are about to go down a magical mystery tour about one of America's finest traditional holidays, which has been nearly eviscerated of its core meaning. To really understand its history, we're going to go deep into world history. I mean, we are going way back. Before there was TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Etsy, Google, and the digital economy and the internet, there was an industrial age. And before that, there was an agricultural age. And before that, there was what most people refer to as the hunter-gatherer age. People lived in small bands and tribes and lived by hunting, fishing, and gathering food. An itsy-bitsy number of people still live like this today. 
Many suggest that civilization started when mankind developed agriculture and domesticated animals. For the lack of a better term, we dub this development the agricultural age. Power was defined by land and access to basic necessities of life, such as water, crops, and animals. Of course, there were exceptions, but for the most part, people were defined by land and their role to it. Alvin Toffler, in his monumental The Third Wave, explained that this was the first wave of civilization. The civilized world was precisely that part of the planet on which most people worked the soil. For wherever agriculture arose, civilization took root. From China and India to Benin and Mexico, in Greece and Rome, civilizations rose and fell, fought and fused in endless, colorful admixture. However, beneath the differences lay fundamental similarities. In all of them, land was the basis of economy, life, culture, family structure, and politics. In all of them, life was organized around the village. In all of them, a simple division of labor prevailed and a few clearly defined castes and classes arose. A nobility, a priesthood, warriors, helots, slaves, or serfs. In all of them, power was rigidly authoritarian. In all of them, birth determined one's position in life. And in all of them, the economy was decentralized so that each community produced most of its own necessities. And we lived that way for eons. But then something happened. A second wave came and smashed many of the underpinnings of the first wave. This second wave is what most scholars term the Industrial Age. Although land, water, agriculture, and domestication of animals was still very important, with the advances of technology, the culture, economy, politics, and labor systems radically changed. Harnessing steam and fossil fuels and revolutionary technologies allowed for mass production, mass education, mass distribution. All this required massive synchronization, routinization, and standardization of production. Vast hierarchies of workforces and management were established. Horse and buggies were replaced with trains, cars, cargo ships, and air travel. Traditional extended families were animized into nuclear families and non-traditional forms. Sole proprietorships and partnerships gave way to corporations and other immortal organizations. Slow and tedious word of mouth was replaced with expeditious mass communication of newspapers, radio, and television. Barter and precious metals were superseded by paper currency and digital credits in bank accounts and credit cards. Alvin Toffler explains the massive effect this all had on the world. The Industrial Revolution erupted, launching the second wave and creating a strange, powerful, feverishly energetic counter-civilization. Industrialism was more than smokestacks and assembly lines. It was a rich, many-sided social system that touched every aspect of human life and attacked every feature of the first wave past. It produced the great Willow Run factory outside Detroit, but it also put the tractor on the farm, the typewriter in the office, the refrigerator in the kitchen. It produced the daily newspaper and the cinema, the subway and the DC-3. It gave us cubism and 12-tone music. It gave us sit-down strikes, vitamin pills, and lengthened lifespans. It universalized the wristwatch and the ballot box. More important, it linked all these things together, assembled them like a machine, 
to form the most powerful, cohesive, and expansive social system the world had ever known, second wave civilization. The hallmarks of the second wave society are number one, standardization. For example, to create on a mass scale, you need agreed upon precise sizes, weights, measurements, pre-configured tools, and other standards. The production all depends on all inputs and outputs being precisely measured. Number two, synchronization. For example, mass production requires that all the labor appear at the factory at the same time. The raw materials must all arrive at the same time, and the tools on the assembly line must all be arranged and timed precisely to enable mass production to occur. Number three, specialization. For example, on the production line for building a Model T, a mass farm grew rubber. Massive cargo ships moved the rubber to the tire factory. The factory produced the tires on an assembly line. A trucker drove them to the Ford plant. A Ford factory worker unloaded them, and another transported the tires to the car assembly line. And finally, a worker on the assembly line put on the driver's side front tire. That this is all he does every day. And then, there are accountants, lawyers, managers, farmers, packers, etc., all playing their small and clearly defined specialized roles. And this is a gross simplification. Number four, concentration. To take advantage of the energy, labor, and other resources efficiently, they all had to be in one place. The countryside emptied out, and mammoth cities grew with highways and huge production plants. Number five, maximization. Bigness was king. There were huge corporations husbanding the resources of tens of thousands, giant skyscrapers, utilities, farms, dams, mines, and manufacturing plants grew. For example, the Willow Run plant that Toffler referred to was a gigantic plant. It was 3,500,000 square feet of factory space. Its aircraft assembly line was over a mile long. And number six, centralization. That is centralization of authority. Local villages gave way to cities, cities to states and other regional governments, regional governments to nations, and nations to international compacts. The managers believed that there was one best way of operating, and once they found it, they imposed it on everyone. Stalin had his five-year plans, as did communist China. Actually, China still has them. Now you may be saying to yourself right about now, okay, okay, I get it, but weren't we supposed to be talking about Labor Day? Precisely. Labor Day arose out of the inevitable conflicts that arose during the second wave between producers and workers, serious clashes between industry and labor. When the second wave was crashing down in our society, we didn't snap our fingers and change our societal norms or legal standards. Owners, producers, and managers held the upper hand. The attitude of laissez-faire, that is a French term for let it go, prevailed. In other words, the parties were free to compete in an unfettered marketplace to negotiate the terms of employment, government regulation of working conditions, health and safety, hours of work, and related matters were not regulated by government. During the first wave, many families were self-sufficient. They grew their own food, made their own clothes, built their own homes, or traded to obtain the necessities of life. For such farmers and even landless workers, tradition, customs, family ties, long-standing relationships, and similar informal conditions define the relationships between the farmer or general worker and the landed gentry. But with the demise of the first wave, all that got swept away. When the Industrial Revolution was in full throttle, many had to abandon the farms and seek work 
in the cities at the mercy of, well, let's just say, less than generous and kind-hearted owners and managers. Add on to that the wave upon wave of immigrants seeking the American dream. There is no question that the utilization of advanced technology and mass production techniques had enormous benefits for society. Goods and technologies we take for granted, or have long since become obsolete, were huge leaps forward. Telephones, typewriters, adding machines, cash registers, the telegraph, the library card catalog, mechanized printing presses, the electric light bulb, railroads, electrification of homes and businesses, movies, records, airplanes, and, you know, we could go on and on. Many back-breaking jobs were replaced by machinery, and homes became replete with labor-reducing tools like washing machines, vacuum cleaners, and lawnmowers. Big businesses grew, and huge fortunes were made. Leveraging a bounty resources, the entrepreneurial spirit, innovation and creativity, and the enabling spirit of the market economy, America became an industrial giant. But with the benefits of the second wave came some serious cost. The lot of the common man was often pretty rough. Although the sources vary, most scholars estimate that in the 1830s, workers in factories worked about 70 hours a week. By the 1890s, the average American worker toiled 10 to 12 hours a day, six to seven days a week. Child labor was common, and some of the kids were just five or six years old. The adults were poorly paid, and the kids were paid a pittance to work in factories and mines. Meanwhile, workers of all kinds worked in brutal conditions. Workplaces often were loud, unventilated, unsanitary, poorly lit, cramped with stale, hot air, or on the other hand, with poor heat. The poor pay meant that workers could not build savings for illness, retirement, accidents, or unemployment. Crippling and even deadly accidents abounded. You remember Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and how Charlie and his family lived? If not, it's a great movie, but suffice it to say, it was a really rough time. In any event, historians Larry Shurkart and Michael Allen summarized the state of affairs. Miners, farmers, and laborers alike grew discontented in the late 19th century, often for different reasons. In mining, fishing, logging, and sawmill towns, capitalism's creative destruction process caused tumultuous change, with economic panics causing unemployment rates to twice rise as high as 30%. Wage earners complained of low salaries and dangerous working conditions, which led to the formation of labor unions, not a few of which were steeped in violence and socialism. But even in the countryside, Western farmers were growing angry over low crop prices, high railroad rates, and competition from agribusiness, expressing the sentiments of producers everywhere who found that they simply did not produce enough value for their fellow man. This realization is difficult, especially for those falling behind. And the second wave, by elevating automation, standardization, and centralization, often struck at the heart of the individual. People felt that they were no longer in control of their lives. They were being denied the ability to find meaning in their life. As the history book, The Making of America related, quote, balanced against the great benefits of the factory system was the subordination of the worker's personality to his machine. The worker found that he was becoming a cog on a huge industrial driving wheel, unquote. Historians Alan Nevins and Henry Steele Comager fleshed out the idea that many workers just became cogs on the wheel. Quote, Indeed, 
Some of the developments which contributed most to the growth of industrial America were a positive disadvantage to labor. Mechanization tended, on the whole, to lower the standards of labor. The skills which workingmen had painfully acquired ceased to have their old-time value, for the machine could do better, cheaper, and quicker most of the things that the trained artisan had done. The creative instinct of craftsmanship was largely destroyed, and workingmen were reduced to a mere part of a mechanical process, automata, and deadening operation." Unquote. As such, the second wave struck at the meaning of life and self-worth and respect of the workers. As we know, many people find great satisfaction in their lives by finding a job, avocation, or career, and doing it well. This can be true from the janitor all the way up to the CEO, from the street cleaner to the oil business mogul. However, the second wave could strip that right down. A passage by Upton Sinclair's famous novel, The Jungle, gets to the heart of the issue. Each one of the hundreds of parts of a mowing machine was made separately and sometimes handled by hundreds of men. Where Jurgis worked, there was a machine which cut and stamped a certain piece of steel about two square inches in size. The pieces came tumbling out upon a tray, and all that human hands had to do was to pile them in regular rows and change the trays at intervals. This was done by a single boy who stood with eyes and thoughts centered upon it and fingers flying so fast that the sound of the bits of steel ring upon each other was like the music of an express train as one hears it in a sleeping car at night. Thirty thousand of these pieces he handled every day, nine or ten million every year. How many in a lifetime it rested with the gods to say. Nearby him sat men bending over whirling grindstones, putting the finishing touches to the steel knives of the reaper, picking them out of a base with the right hand, pressing first one side and then the other against the stone, and finally dropping them with the left hand into another basket. One of these men told Jurgis he had sharpened 3,000 pieces of steel a day for 13 years. Oh my, that sounds depressing. Hard for the human spirit to flourish in those conditions. Hand in glove with this cog-in-the-wheel mentality was the fact that many laborers were barely recognized by their employers. With the advent of the corporation, especially large, multi-state enterprises, the informal, communal, often friendly connections between worker and employer vanished. President Teddy Roosevelt explained the painful reality. The old familiar relations between employer and employee were passing. A few generations before, the boss had known every man in his shop. He called his men Bill, Tom, Dick, and John. He inquired about their wives and babies. He swapped jokes and stories and perhaps a bit of tobacco with them. In the small establishment, there had been a friendly human relationship between employer and employee. There was no such relationship between the great railway magnates who controlled the anthracite industry and the 150,000 men who worked in their mines or the half million women and children who were dependent upon those miners for the daily bread. As individuals, workers could easily be replaced with the teeming masses in the cities. Those who were leaving the farms and rural life, along with the waves of immigration, meant that there was a huge supply of labor. The second wave meant that someone who had been on the job for even a decade could easily be replaced by a new worker with almost no training. Individual workers had almost no power to advocate for changes to their working conditions. At this point in the story, 
I'll be turning over the narration to Mike Gerard Skinachny, host of the Be Reasonable podcast with Mike Gerard for Skin segment. Well, thank you, Judge Warren. And while you did get to talk about Toffler and the depressing nature of the second wave for many workers, which was pretty neat, I get to talk about the hope brought about by working men and women. Although there were some attempts prior to the Civil War to unionize workers, it was really in the wake of the Civil War that a labor and union movement began to coalesce to demand changes to the working conditions. These demands included higher wages, reduced hours, and safer working conditions. And several major unions were formed at the time, including the Noble Order of the Knights of Labor and the American Federation of Labor. The Knights of Labor were wildly successful. They organized 700,000 members by 1886, and they had major demands. Number one, the use of arbitration to resolve labor disputes. Number two, the prohibition of child labor. Number three, an eight-hour workday. Number four, equal pay for men and women. And number five, health and safety laws. And remember, that's in 1886. For a variety of reasons, the Knights faded by 1894, but they did reflect the concerns of millions of American workers at that time. Meanwhile, the American Federation of Labor, who was led by an English immigrant named Samuel Gompers, he organized a National Federation of Trade Unions in 1881. Gompers was born in the slums of London, and he landed in the United States in 1863 when he was just 13 years old, and he had already been forced to go to work when he was just 10. He began as an apprentice cobbler, but eventually worked for a cigar-making company. He wound up reorganizing the Cigar Makers Union, which, by the way, my grandmother was a member of, and soon Gompers was on his way to creating the American Federation of Labor, better known as the AFL. And no, that's not the American Football League. The AFL demanded higher wages, reduced hours, a six-day work week, and the prohibition of child labor. The late 1800s were a tumultuous time. Labor and management had a contentious relationship resulting in strikes, boycotts, lockouts, blacklists, violence, picketing, and all manner of civil strife. Estimates vary, but there were approximately 25,000 strikes between 1880 and 1900, involving more than 6 million workers. And there were approximately another 12,000 strikes from 1901 to 1905. Historians Alan Nevis and Henry Steele Commager summarized the tumult. From 1881 to 1905, there occurred no less than 37,000 strikes, most of them brief and local, some of them prolonged and nationwide. The most spectacular strikes of this period were the railroad strike of 1877, which first introduced large-scale industrial violence to Americans. The strike at the McCormick Harvester Works in 1886, which culminated in the tragedy of the Haymarket Riot. The Homestead Strike of 1892, which was marked by a pitch battle on the banks of the Monongahela. 
the Great Pullman Strike of 1894, which tied up half the railroads of the nation, the terrible Cripple Creek War in the Colorado coal fields, and the anthracite coal strike of 1902, which threatened to paralyze industry throughout the country and which was finally settled only by the intervention of President Theodore Roosevelt. We don't need to explore this entire history, but to create the context and set the stage, let's review three major incidents that would leave an indelible imprint on the American psyche. The Haymarket Incident in 1886 cast a long shadow over labor relations. To make a very long story relatively short, there was a strike in Chicago against the McCormick Harvester Company factory. On May 1, 1886, strikers threw rocks at the police, and they returned the favor by shooting dead four strikers. After this, the details start to get a little bit fuzzy. Major sources conflict, but we do know that four days later, there was a mass meeting in Chicago's Haymarket Square to protest the killings. Some believe that the Knights of Labor organized it. Others claim it was people only loosely affiliated with them, and others still say that the Knights had nothing to do with it at all. And when the police tried to break up the meeting, an unknown person threw a bomb, fatally wounding seven policemen and injuring several more. A firefight broke out between protesters and the police, killing two more civilians. At the end of the riot, or incident, because the sources clash over what to even call it, approximately 60 police and civilians were injured. A total of 11 were killed. The bomber was never identified, but according to some sources, eight knights of labor, or eight people loosely associated with the knights, or just eight German anarchists were convicted of inciting a riot. Most sources observe that the trial was terribly unfair and rigged against the defendants. Four were hanged. One committed suicide the night before his execution day, and he used an explosive in his mouth, and three were imprisoned but eventually pardoned. This riot, or incident, or tragedy, or whatever you want to call it, was seen as an outgrowth of the labor movement, and was a tremendous public relations setback for the Knights of Labor. They really never recovered, and soon went defunct. It was perceived as a black stain against unions and labor in general. A few years later, the Homestead Steel Strike revealed the lengths to which the captains of industry and unions would go. Homestead Steel was one of Andrew Carnegie's steel mills. The workers joined the Amalgamated Association of Iron, Steel, and Tin Workers with the hope of reducing their 12-hour workdays and obtaining raises. However, the workers' contracts with the steel mill expired in July 1892, and the union and the company couldn't reach an agreement. The workers went on to strike, and the company responded by hiring armed private detectives to protect the plant. In a pitched battle, the strikers drove out the 300 hired detectives. Seven detectives were shot and killed in the skirmish, but the victory for the workers was short-lived. State militia in turn drove out the workers. The strike was broken, and the union collapsed. 
And this was emblematic of the bitter battles using violence between management and labor. It seemed that workers and management were in a clash of the titans. The Pullman strike is our third famous example. The Pullman Palace Car Company manufactured and operated railroad parlor cars and sleeping cars. They had factories located in a company town called, fittingly enough, Pullman, which was very close to Chicago and, in fact, is part of Chicago today. As a company town, the Pullman Company owned everything. The factories, houses, stores, utilities, you name it, the Pullman Company owned it. They even banned alcohol. Prices were high and wages were low, a railroad mogul's dream. In the 1890s, the country entered a depression and demand for Pullman cars dropped. The Pullman company responded by cutting wages 20%, laying off hundreds of workers, and keeping rent payments the same. Most of the Pullman company's workers were in the American Railway Union, which was led by Eugene V. Debs. Now, Debs is a fascinating character in his own right. He's best known for being a five-time socialist candidate for president and receiving nearly a million votes in 1920 when he was in prison. Back in 1893, he hadn't yet become a socialist and instead was the president of the newly created American Railway Union. And this was not a small operation. The union had 150,000 employees. When the Pullman Company cut workers' wages and workers, a committee of workers met with management and demanded the wages be restored. The company not only refused, they retaliated by firing three of the leaders of the committee. On May 11, 1894, the union went on strike, and the Pullman Company had to shutter its operations. The company then refused to go to arbitration as requested by the union. Allen and Commager elaborate on what happened next. The workers promptly laid down their tools. The newly organized American Railway Union, under the leadership of young Eugene V. Debs, made the case of the Pullman workers its own, directing its members not to handle any Pullman cars. With this action, war between the railroads and workers was on and it covered half the nation. Within a few weeks, transportation throughout much of the North and West was paralyzed, and a Metropolitan Daily, anticipating the method used to break the strike, announced that this was, quote, a war against the government and against society, unquote. Alarmed at the apparent success of the strike and determined to smash the nascent railway union before it caused further trouble, an employer's organization, the General Managers Association, demanded that the federal government intervene to maintain uninterrupted railway service. Soon, the strike affected 27 states and territories. At the insistence of the United States Attorney General Richard Only, who happened to be a former railroad lawyer, the federal government obtained an injunction against the union to stop the strike. It was issued to protect interstate commerce and under the Sherman Antitrust Act. Once the injunction went into effect, violence and property destruction surrounded the strike. Mobs started tipping railroad cars and burning them. Rioting and property destruction was rampant. In the end, dozens of people were killed. Fingers have been pointed ever since, 
The company blamed the strikers. The strikers blamed the agent provocateurs sent in by the company. No one really knows, and it was probably a mix of them all. President Grover Cleveland ordered U.S. Army troops to break up the strike in Illinois. Now, this was interesting because Governor Altag of Illinois wanted nothing to do with it, but the federal government had jurisdiction over mail cars that were on the railways, and the governor was ignored. The strike was broken on July 20, 1894. Debs and other union leaders were arrested for obstructing mail cars and for contempt of court for violating the injunction. The mail charge was dropped, but Debs was sentenced to six months for contempt of court. In a case of unintended consequences and be careful of what you ask for, while sitting in jail, Debs studied Karl Marx and the other socialist literature and, voila, he became a socialist. Even more important, the episode resulted in a major swing in public opinion and public policy with labor gaining many rights over the next few years. So that's the backdrop of the origin of Labor Day and why many felt compelled to celebrate it. But a few years before the Haymarket riot, the Homestead Steel Strike, or the Pullman Company Strike, New York City was the locale of the first Labor Day celebration. The Central Labor Union in New York City organized and celebrated it on September 5, 1882. On that momentous day, 10,000 workers marched in a parade in Manhattan from New York City Hall to Union Square. They finished with a huge picnic. Because this was a union-organized celebration, this wasn't a holiday, and anyone who marched missed work and lost their wages. This was a Monday, so probably anyone employed on that day went unpaid. How did they make an excuse to miss work? They declared a one-day strike. Now that's American ingenuity at work. And on the last page of the New York Times, the event was covered with the headline, Working Men on Parade, an Orderly Labor Demonstration, 10,000 Men in Line. The article went on to report, the parade of the working men yesterday, although not as large as organizers had predicted, was conducted in an orderly and pleasant manner. Those who rode or marched in the procession were cheerful and evidently highly gratified with the display. Nearly all were well clothed, and some wore attire of fashionable cut. The great majority smoked cigars, and all seemed bent upon having a good time at the picnic grounds. Marchers carried signs calling for less work, more pay, an eight-hour workday, and banning of convict labor. The New York Tribune was a bit less glowing, reporting that the day was one long political barbecue with rather dull speeches. So, we understand the context, but who came up with the idea? Not to interrupt, but as the co-founder of Patriot Week, I know that my then 10-year-old daughter Lee and I were having lunch in 2009 when she demanded a new celebration for America, and in the next couple months we flushed it out. So I have a keen interest in the origin of holidays and some expectations that they can be traced. You know, he never tires of telling that story. But he raises a good point. We know who started Patriot Week, but there's a mystery around Labor Day. And to be sure, it has an origin story. 
Well, actually, it has two origin stories. Origin story number one holds that Labor Day was the brainchild of Peter J. McGuire, co-founder of the American Federation of Labor. A machinist by trade, he also founded the New York City Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners. And origin story number two posits that Labor Day was the brainchild of Matthew McGuire, the secretary of the Central Labor Union. These two last names sound similar, but they are spelled differently. Peter's name is spelled M-C-G-U-I-R-E, while Matthew's name is M-A-G-U-I-R-E. So, I don't know, for Peter, think McDonald's and he's the AFL guy? Well, anyways, David Floyd, writing for Investopedia, notes that both Matthew and Peter probably each had an Irish ancestor named Mag Uder, but we don't need to go down that genealogy rabbit hole. I mean, if you want to, aspiring podcasters, here's yet another idea, the Genealogy Podcast. But look, we're trying to stick with Labor Day here, right? Okay, so scholarship in the 1930s found that Peter suggested a Labor Day with a date that would fall about midway between Independence Day and Thanksgiving. However, later scholarship from the 1970s suggests that Matthew came up with the idea. The only thing that's certain is that nobody really knows. Hey, Mike Gerard. in case you missed it, my daughter Leah demanded a new celebration for America, and we developed Patriot Week in 2009. End of that debate. Uh, yeah. Thanks for that, Judge Warren. We get it. Ten-year-old daughter, fists pounding on table. I love you, Leah, but blah, 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 blah. So anyways, after the first celebration in New York City, the idea spread across the country. In 1887, which was just after the Haymarket Square riot, Oregon became the first state to officially recognize Labor Day, and Colorado, Massachusetts, New York, and New Jersey followed suit that first year. Within 12 years, half of the United States recognized it as an official holiday. Senator James Henderson Kyle of South Dakota introduced Senate Bill 730 in Congress on August 28th 1893, and it sat in committee for months. However, the Pullman strike brought the issue to the forefront. That strike started on May 11, 1894, and Representative Lawrence McGann, a Democrat from Illinois, who sat on the Committee on Labor, argued for the holiday in a report submitted on May 15th. The use of national holidays is to emphasize some great event or principle in the minds of the people by giving them a day of rest and recreation, a day of enjoyment in commemoration of it. By making one day in each year a public holiday for the benefit of working men, the equality and dignity of labor is emphasized. Nothing is more important to the public weal than that the nobility of labor be maintained. So long as the laboring man can feel that he holds an honorable as well as useful place in the body politic, so long will he be a loyal and faithful citizen. The celebration of Labor Day as a national holiday will in time naturally lead to an honorable emulation among the different crafts beneficial to them and to the whole public, 
it will tend to increase the feeling of common brotherhood among men of all crafts and callings, and at the same time kindle an honorable desire in each craft to surpass the rest. After the Senate finally took up the bill and passed it, the House of Representatives passed it unanimously. President Grover Cleveland signed the bill into law on June 28, 1894. That's right, in the middle of the Pullman strike. Many scholars suggest that President Cleveland was trying to curry favor with labor for his re-election bid. If he did, it didn't work. The text of the law itself is very simple. Be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled, that the first Monday of September in each year being the day celebrated and known as Labor's Holiday is hereby made legal public holiday to all intents and purposes in the same manner as Christmas, the first day of January, the 22nd day of February, the 30th day of May, and the 4th day of July are now by law made public holidays. 5 United States Code Section 6193 provides that federal employees receive paid leave on Labor Day. However, other employers are free to require employees to work. Otherwise, how would you have those great Labor Day sales and buy ice for the barbecue? And now, we're turning over the show to bombastic Brent's Briefs to contrast Labor Day with an alternative holiday celebrated across the world May Day. Brent, take it away. Thanks, Ken. Sure, be reasonable. Mike Gerard gets to talk about the passage of the American holiday, and I get stuck with the communists yet again. May Day, also sometimes referred to as International Workers' Day, is a competing and distinct holiday that celebrates labor. It is usually associated with socialist and communist societies and is celebrated on May 1st. The idea of a holiday dedicated to labor from the communist and socialist perspective arose in Australia in an attempt to obtain an eight-hour workday. But their first celebration was on April 26th. The Americans took that example, but locked on to May 1st, a traditional Gaelic holiday of Beltane, a celebration of rebirth, fertility, and fire. This festival purportedly started as a celebration around the equinox and also evolved in the Middle Ages to include Maypole celebrations. So, like Labor Day, May Day is an American invention. Our ingenuity is unparalleled. The first May Day celebration occurred on May 1, 1886. That is a few years after the first Labor Day celebration in New York City. That first May Day was celebrated in Chicago when over 30,000 workers from 13,000 businesses walked off their jobs. They marched in parades accompanied by playing bands, and their numbers swelled to 100,000. The demonstration continued through May 3, 1886, when the events triggering the Haymarket Riot occurred. Yes, that Haymarket Riot was started in connection with the first May Day celebration. Rosa Luxemburg a founding member of the Communist Party of Germany and a Marxist theorist and philosopher, explained the origin of May Day in a speech aptly entitled, What are the Origins of May Day?, given in 1894. She noted that May Day was part of the Socialist and Communist Revolution, a vital tool of their international strategy to convert the world into a Marxist utopia. In 1886, the Americans, they decided that May 1st 
should be the day of universal work stoppage. In the meanwhile, the workers' movement in Europe had grown strong and animated. The most powerful expression of this movement occurred at the International Workers' Congress in 1889. At this Congress, attended by 400 delegates, it was decided that the eight-hour day must be the first demand. Whereupon, the delegate of the French unions, the worker Levant from Bordeaux, moved that this demand be expressed in all countries through a universal work stoppage. The delegate of the American workers called attention to the decision of his comrades to strike on May 1, 1890, and the Congress decided on this date for the universal proletarian celebration. The 1st of May demanded the introduction of the eight-hour day. But even after this goal was reached, May Day was not given up. As long as the struggle of the workers against the bourgeoisie and the ruling class continues, as long as all demands are not met, May Day will be the yearly expression of these demands. And when better days dawn, when the working class of the world has won its deliverance, then too humanity will probably celebrate May Day in honor of the bitter struggles of the many sufferings of the past. Leo Pantage, professor of political economy at York University and co-editor of the Socialist Register, in his essay, What You Need to Know About May Day, contrasts the purposes of May Day versus Labor Day. He explains that Labor Day is a day celebrated by Americans within the free enterprise system, while May Day is for the revolutionaries. The American Federation of Labor, chastened by the Red Scare that followed the Haymarket events, went along with those who opposed May Day observances. Instead, in 1894, the AFL embraced President Grover Cleveland's decree that the first of Monday of September would be the annual Labor Day. The Canadian government of Sir Robert Thompson enacted identical Labor Day legislation a month later. Ever since, May Day and Labor Day have represented in North America the two faces of working-class political tradition, one symbolizing its revolutionary potential, and the other its long search for reform and respectability. With the support of the state and business, the latter has predominated, but the more radical tradition has never been entirely suppressed. But let's face it, this is all pretty watered down and tepid analysis. To really get to the heart of May Day, one only need to turn to the Soviet revolutionary Vladimir Lenin. Lenin, of course, took the theoretical ideas of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels and put it to work in the monumental Russian Revolution of 1917. May Day is so important to Lenin that he actually drafted a work entitled May Day. May Day, he explained, is not only a celebration and a time for demands on behalf of the workers, it is also a vital recruitment tool for the revolution. In May Day, he lets it all hang out. Comrade workers, May Day is coming, the day when the workers of all lands celebrate their awakening to a class-conscious life, their solidarity in the struggle against all coercion and oppression of man by man, the struggle to free the toiling millions from hunger, poverty, and humiliation. Two worlds stand facing each other in this great struggle, the world of capital and the world of labor, the world of exploitation and slavery, and the world of brotherhood and freedom. On one side stand the handful of rich bloodsuckers. They have seized the factories and mills, the tools and machinery, have turned millions of acres of land and mountains of money into their private property. They have made the government and the army their servants, faithful watchdogs of the wealth they have amassed. On the other side, 
stand the millions of the disinherited. They are forced to beg the money bags for permission to work for them. By their labor they create all wealth, yet their lives long have they struggled for a crust of bread, beg for work as for charity, sap their strength and health by back-breaking toil, and starve in hovels in the villages or in the cellars and garrets of the big cities. But now these disinherited toilers have declared war on the money-bags and exploiters. The workers of all lands are fighting to free labor from wage slavery, from poverty, and from want. The great struggle of labor against capital has cost the workers of all countries immense sacrifices. They have shed rivers of blood in behalf of their right to a better life and real freedom. Those who fought for the workers' cause are subjected by the governments to untold persecution. Comrade workers, let us then prepare with redoubled energy for the decisive battle that is at hand. Let the ranks of the social democrat proletarians close ever firmer. Let their words spread ever farther afield. Let campaigning for the workers' demands be carried on ever more boldly. Let the celebration of May Day win thousands of new fighters to our cause and swell our forces in the great struggle for the freedom of all the people, for the liberation of all who toil from the yoke of capital. Long live the eight-hour day. Long live international revolutionary social democracy. Down with the criminal and plundering czarist autocracy. Whew, you have to give credit to Lenin. He knew how to rile up his fellow communists. This idea of the importance and purpose of May Day was widespread throughout the world. Another particularly riveting example of a communist-inspired May Day was Cuban communist dictator Fidel Castro in his Havana's May Day speech in 1961, less than two weeks after the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. The Bay of Pigs invasion was a failed attempt by Cuban freedom fighters and the CIA to overthrow the communist regime. Here we go. We had a chance today to see genuine results of the revolution on this May Day so different from the May Days of the past. Today's parade shows us how much we have advanced. The workers no longer live in a country run by men serving exploiting interests. The workers now know that everything the revolution does, everything the government does or can do, has one goal, helping the workers, helping the people. Fruits of the revolution are seen everywhere. Today, we have had a chance to see everything worthwhile in our country, everything produced in our country. We have understood better than ever that there are two classes of citizen, or rather, there were two classes of citizen. The citizens who worked, produced, and created, and the citizens who lived without working or producing. These latter were parasites. Those who paraded today were the working people who will never resign themselves to work for the parasites. Let us not talk about what would have happened if the imperialist had won. There is no sadder picture than a defeated revolution. The blood that was shed was the blood of workers and peasants, the blood of humble sons of the people, not blood of landowners, millionaires, thieves, criminals, or exploiters. The bloodshed was the blood of the exploited of yesterday, the free men of today. The bloodshed was humble, honest, working, creative blood. 
the blood of patriots, not the blood of mercenaries. What were the political parties? Just an expression of class interest. Here there is just one class, the humble. That class is in power, so it is not interested in the ambition of an exploiting minority to get back in power. You have to give it to the communists. They know how to get the blood flowing. Despite the massive collapse of communism across the globe, May Day is still celebrated in 66 countries today. Yet the reality is that many of these are still carryovers from springtime festivals or are more like our Labor Day. With the last section of our episode, we pass the baton back to that red-blooded American, Judge Warren. Thanks, Brent, for another brilliant, bombastic Brent's Brief. America has rejected the blood-stained, genocidal tendencies of communism and rejected May Day. In fact, the United States celebrates Law Day on May 1st in direct opposition to May Day. That might be fodder for another episode down the road. The importance of Labor Day has waxed and waned with the times. One really interesting example of Labor Day being an inspiration for the nation at a time of crisis was President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Labor Day Address in 1941. The United States had not yet entered World War II, but we were on the verge, and he explained why the values we celebrate on Labor Day are so vital to freedom here and around the world. On this day, this American holiday, we are celebrating the rights of free laboring men and women. The preservation of these rights is vitally important now not only to us who enjoy them, but to the whole future of Christian civilization. American labor now bears a tremendous responsibility in the winning of this most brutal, most terrible of all wars. In our factories and shops and arsenals, we are building weapons on a scale great in its magnitude. To all the battle fronts of this world, these weapons are being dispatched by day and by night over the seas and through the air. And this nation is now devising and developing new weapons of unprecedented power toward the maintenance of democracy. Why are we doing this? Why are we determined to devote our entire industrial effort to the prosecution of a war which has not yet actually touched our shores? We're not a warlike people. We've never sought glory as a nation of warriors. We're not interested in aggression. We are not interested, as the dictators are, in looting. We do not covet one square inch of the territory of any other nation. Now we have a better understanding of how he won four terms as president. Labor Day, however, has not always been used for such lofty goals. For example, President Ronald Reagan was dubbed the great communicator. His speeches were really second to none, and he often inspired us to our highest ideals. After all, he took down the Soviet Union without a shot. But take a listen to President Reagan's Labor Day address in 1984. My fellow Americans, this weekend marks the 90th observance of Labor Day, a well-deserved tribute to the working men and women whose dreams and hard work helped build America into the greatest nation in the world. We know that what is good for the American worker is good for America. And as we prepare for a new season of work, I believe there's good reason for giving a hopeful thumbs up. The outlook on Labor Day weekend 1984 is for a continuation of strong, steady economic growth, more jobs, and low inflation. 
We still have great challenges to meet, which I'll speak about in a moment. But we should also recognize the progress we've made together. It's an important source of confidence and inspiration for our future. In the last 19 months, the jobless rate has fallen farther and faster than any recovery in the last 30 years. We've seen the creation of 6.5 million new jobs. The United States has created, on average, more jobs each month than all the common market countries combined in the last 10 years. The, Soviet, the Europeans are calling our success the American miracle. A case in point is the automobile industry. Unemployment peaked at 28% in 1980. By this July, auto industry unemployment was down to 6.1%, and there were 153,000 more people at work in auto industry jobs than four years ago. A key reason that job growth has been so strong is our success in keeping inflation down. We haven't seen unemployment and inflation drop during any term since the Kennedy administration. And we're determined to bring inflation further down, just as we're determined to simplify our tax system so we can bring your tax rates further down, not up as my opponent would do. Okay, that was pretty much a glancing reference to Labor Day to make a campaign pitch. That Labor Day has not had the solemnity of purpose some might desire did not start with Reagan. Quite to the contrary, its mixed celebration started right at the beginning. When the New York Times reported the first official State of New York holiday celebration in 1887, its September 6, 1887 edition of the paper observed, quote, The bar rooms were never more resplendent. Liquidly, the first legal celebration of Labor Day may go down to history as an unqualified success, unquote. So, drinking has gone hand in glove with Labor Day from the very beginning. I guess I shouldn't be too upset that Mike Gerard looks like he is hunting for beer as we speak. In fact, the New York Times continued, uh, Skim, uh, you got to put the beer down now because it's your turn. Huh? Oh, uh, okay. Uh, New York Times, right. <clears throat> Labor Day was honored in this city yesterday more in the breach than in observance. The variation of a large and miscellaneous parade served only to impress on the public at large so far as could be observed the unfitness of the season for a general holiday. Of course, many voters were closed, and there were vast numbers of people on the streets. But businesses slept with an eye open, and behind the closed iron shutters in the whole district, which was apparent the one most seriously affected, clerks were as busy as at any time from the past week, trying to catch up with the orders, and nay purchaser who chose to edge his way within the freight entrance. In fact, the original Labor Day, remember, ended in a big picnic. Celebrants drank beer, danced, and used fireworks. We look around today, and we see people drinking beer, going to sales, and enjoying barbecues. Looks like Independence Day has cornered the market on fireworks, but the stores have picked up the slack with sales. What's that old French saying? And I apologize now to our French-speaking audience since I love the French and their language, but continue to mangle it. Plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Which means, the more things change, the more things stay the same. So, patriots, enjoy yourself when you celebrate Labor Day. Be safe and try to celebrate the vital importance of the contributions of labor to our society with good cheer and a great toast. Skin, what do you think? Oh, uh, right on, Judge. Ah, to Labor Day. Cheers. Now that's the spirit. Some key takeaways from this episode. 
With the tumultuous changes brought on by the second wave industrial revolution, the way of life for many workers was hard pressed, leading to the labor and union movement, which took on great potency in the late 1800s. The labor movement was severely challenged by industrial magnets and working men and women had to fight for the right to organize and improve their living conditions. The brainchild of one of two grassroots labor organizers, Labor Day was originally celebrated in New York City in 1882 as part of a one-day strike. Beginning with Oregon in 1887, states began to officially recognize Labor Day. The movement spread quickly. Congress and President Cleveland officially recognized Labor Day as a national holiday in 1894 during the Pullman strike. Americans have rejected the communist-oriented May Day and instead celebrate Law Day on May 1st and Labor Day on the first Monday of September. Celebrating the labor movement and workers, along with having a good time, has been a part of Labor Day ever since the beginning. Fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Please join us next time when we continue our exploration of the Declaration of Independence, in particular the following, quote, Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when the long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has now been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. Unquote. Until then, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, Patriots, for listening to Patriot Lessons. I'm David Drewicki, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give those five golden stars. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google, Anchor, and many other platforms. You can also learn more by visiting PatriotWeek.org. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook on our Patriot Week Foundation page and on Instagram at Patriot Week 1776. If you are interested in becoming involved in this grassroots effort or have any questions or comments, please send us a message on the social media platforms I mentioned or connect with Judge Warren directly at mwarren.com at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles in History by visiting americassurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.